Hello everyone, this is Paul Aronowitz. I'm a physician at UC Davis Medical Center in Sacramento, California, where I'm also clinical sciences professor of medicine at UC Davis School of Medicine, and I am clerkship director of internal medicine. Today, I'm going to broadcast to you the joy of medicine, 10 questions you always wondered about but didn't have time to search. And this is based on two grand rounds that I've done, one at UC Davis Medical Center in June of 2015, and the other one uh, was a repeat performance yesterday, December 4th, 2015, at Alameda County Medical Center for the Department of Medicine and the Internal Medicine Residency there. I think that you'll enjoy this grand rounds, um, but we'll see how it goes, and um, I hope that you enjoy it. Uh, first of all, I have no conflicts of interest to report uh, regarding anything I'm going to talk with you about today, nor do I have any speaker conflicts of interest in general. The goals today are for you to have fun listening to this podcast, for you to learn three new things, and for me to ramble on senselessly uh, for about 45 or 50 minutes as I relate to you some new pieces of knowledge you may not have had before. Um, what this prop talk probably will not do for you is to make you a better doctor, although I've had uh, people who've seen both versions of this talk tell me that they felt that actually there were some useful things in there that would change how they practice medicine. So that was good news, but I'll let you be the judge on that. And if you're not a physician, I hope you enjoy this talk because there's a fair number of interesting little tidbits in here that apply uh, or maybe are useful uh, or perhaps even irrelevant knowledge for you to know. Uh, if you are a medical student, a resident, or a practicing physician, this will probably not help you pass the American Board of Internal Medicine exams or the Medicine Shelf exam or the uh, USMLE exam, step two, which our medical students need to take uh, at the end of their third year of medical school training. But what I think this talk will do for you is to make you a more interesting conversationalist at dinner parties, cocktail parties, perhaps in nursing units throughout the healthcare system you work in if you are a nurse or healthcare professional, uh, also on long bike rides since we do have a talk about uh, an article in here uh, on long bike rides. Uh, dog walking parks and cat tea houses in Japan, uh, because if you didn't know it, there are tea houses in Japan that have cats in them so people can come and have their tea and pet some cats. It's considered to be relaxing uh, and uh, stress lysing. So the questions I'm going to talk with you about today, because you know in internal medicine and other areas of uh, medical practice, we frequently ask questions and then go to the medical literature to try and seek out answers so that we're practicing in a cutting-edge way. Uh, the number one question that I'll ask you is, were there billing disputes between physicians and patients uh, back in the 1800s? And I will talk to you about that. Second question is, how much is a patient charged for an echocardiogram at one uh, University of California hospital? Uh, this is uh, representative of sort of what's been going on widely in hospitals throughout the United States, and I think you'll find it of interest whether you're a physician or not. Uh, three, how should you greet your patients? Four, is how you greet your patients considered to be hygienic by recent studies that have been done? Five, is medicine going to the dogs and cats? Six, do some residents really have black clouds when they're on call?
So uh, seventh question I'll address is how should you name that new infectious disease you're about to discover? Eight, is there an antidote to bike riding related sexual dysfunction? And there is uh, an entity of sexual dysfunction associated with bike riding that you may or may not be aware of. Number nine, are men more likely to eliminate themselves from the gene pool by doing idiotic things than are women? And number 10, my final question I'll address is why do knuckles crack? So regarding the question of uh, were there billing disputes before you were born, and I mean before any of you were born, I don't care exactly when you were born, there's probably no one older than 120 listening to this podcast. And so this is based on a page from The Lancet of March 19th, 1892, and I just happened to be perusing uh, an old edition of this medical journal, which I highly recommend. It's really, really, really fun, and you can learn a few things as well as see how far medicine has come in the last 150 years or so. So this is a page uh, with an article on recovery of medical charges, and I'm simply going to read you what it says because I think in that uh, it says it all. Recovery of medical charges. It is always gratifying to report the success of a medical man in an action of recovering his charges. We have lately had occasion to notice the frequency with which such actions are rewarded by success. A case has just been reported in the Sussex Daily News where on March 8th, Dr. Whitmarsh of Brighton brought a claim against the Reverend J. Moses, rector of Itchenfield, for 25 pounds odd for attendance on the defendant's wife and daughter. Medical particulars were not given. The defense was that the visits were too frequent and were overcharged. The defendant paid 12 guineas into court. The plaintiff, on the contrary, maintained that there was no excess of visits and that the charges were reasonable. His Honor, Judge Martineau, said that in regard to the number of visits, one must trust to the honor of the medical man. Quote, if one thought that the doctor was making a job by running up the bill unnecessarily, the sooner one got rid of him, the better. End quote. The jury found for the full amount and expressed their belief that all the visits charged for were paid and that the charges were just. Also on this page, I should add, there are a couple other fascinating articles. Uh, one was uh, titled A Rigorous Experiment, and uh, this experiment was essentially done in the Russian army uh, where they wanted to see if troops could sleep outside in tents in the middle of the winter. So they randomly chose eight soldiers from the Russian army and put them in a tent overnight in the wintertime in Russia. So they gave them very heavy clothing to wear, and they also covered the floor of the tents with mats as well as straw. It was noted that the men slept comfortably from early in the evening until nearly 4 a.m. the next morning, and at that hour, the thermometer showed that the temperature, which initially registered at about 31 degrees Fahrenheit, had fallen to 4 degrees below zero, inside as well as outside the tent. So it became impossible for the soldiers to sleep, so they went outside the tent and had to walk around in the open air in order to stay warm and not develop uh, frostbite or other uh, adverse consequences. Uh, so in the end, the conclusion of this so-called rigorous experiment uh, was that uh, human species subjected to this, as they called it, experimentum in corpore villi, um, 
uh, that uh, perhaps this was not the greatest idea, having troops sleep outside in the winter time. Uh, and this was noted that the recorded experience of Pacific voyagers um, who have often camped out in tents may, may now suffice for evidence as to the amount and quality of clothing and of tent appliances required to withstand extremes of winter cold. So that, that in those days was a rigorous experiment. The other interesting article on this page was a de debate on phagocytosis, which was carried out at the Pathological Society in uh, England. And at this time, it's worth noting uh, phagocytosis, which came to be described as a very, very important function of cells, particularly macrophages, in gobbling up um, invaders into the human body, such as bacteria and so forth. Uh, at those days, uh, it was not at all clear that phagocytosis actually occurred, and it was uh, open to a rigorous debate, as is reported in this journal. So again, just an indication of how far medicine has come, as well as, of course, uh, biologic and microbiologic science. So the second question this leads us to, speaking of money, is how much is a patient charged for an echocardiogram at a UC hospital? Well, so here uh, in my talk, I outlined or actually presented, did not outline, I actually presented a patient bill. And this was a bill sent to the patient. Now, what's charged on these sheets is not necessarily what the patient pays, but potentially maybe what the patient is charged if they don't have health insurance. And in this case, the patient underwent what's called an echocardiogram, and this was without a bubble study. Uh, it was done in about 22 minutes by an experienced technologist um, who's probably done hundreds of echocardiograms. And then it is reviewed by a cardiologist who's a specialist in the heart, and that person um, makes sure that he agrees with the computer's interpretation and the text interpretation of the findings on the echocardiogram. So you essentially have something that probably in total takes about an hour done with a fairly fancy uh, device, which is this uh, uh, echo machine. And uh, so it's difficult to convey to you exactly uh, how simple a procedure it is when done at the bedside with a patient. It is a non-invasive procedure. There are no risks involved in doing this procedure. The charge that was actually reported to the patient on this bill uh, that was sent to the insurance company was $5,174, which is uh, quite uh, striking um, given the study that was being done. The insurance company actually paid $1,676.04 of that $5,174, which meant that they adjusted the bill downward by $3,477.96. The patient, however, only had to pay $20 uh, copay, as we're, we call it. And uh, so they, the patient got probably quite a bargain on this particular thing, but please note that the patient had health insurance and it was a good plan. Uh, now, you can interpret this bill in any number of ways, and I think the most important reason to be aware of these types of charges that go on all the time in American hospitals in the United States is that the hospitals would argue that they're using uh, what is essentially overcharging for one procedure or material um, provided in the hospital or service to compensate for the expense of many other charges. For example, taking care of uninsured patients or uh, very, very expensive uh, procedures such as transplantation and so forth. 
Uh, and that would be their argue, argument in defense of this. And I would uh, refer you to an article in the New York Times uh, that was, came out uh, back at a, in about 2013 by Elizabeth Rosenthal. And this, uh, if you search this on the Internet, if you go under uh, $500 a stitch, uh, it's a series of articles that actually talks about hospital charges and how completely insane they are, but at the same time they do interview some hospital executives in that article that defend the way these charges are done. Main reason to know about these charges is if you have a patient who's uninsured and receives a bill for an echocardiogram, it may be as high as five or six thousand dollars. I think not all hospitals charge this amount for these this procedure. They may charge more for other procedures that are charged lower at the particular hospital I'm talking about. Um, but be aware that an uninsured patient can get hammered with these bills. <clears throat> Usually they can go back to the hospital and renegotiate the bill down to a lower rate. But keep in mind that illness is still the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States. And just analyzing this particular bill, you can understand why that might be, even if the bill is negotiated to a low, lower level by an uninsured patient or an underinsured patient. So in the end, um, this patient only paid $20 of a $5,174 charge for this echocardiogram. So how should you greet your patients? Uh, this is an unrelated topic to echocardiograms and costs in hospitals. Um, but one of the things that we take for granted in medicine and in medical education, which is an area that I'm very interested and active in, is that our medical students, residents, and physicians know how to greet their patients and know how patients prefer to be greeted. Uh, so this was a study that was uh, carried out in the Archives of Internal Medicine and published uh, back in 2007. And essentially what they were trying to do was to uh, develop an evidence base for how greetings should be done in medical encounters. And it was called an evidence-based perspective on greetings in medical encounters. Um, the study did two things. The first was that they did a telephone survey of um, about uh, 415 um, people around the country in order to ask them how they preferred their physician to greet them, i.e., did they prefer a shake of their hand or something else, and whether they preferred to have their first and name be used by their physicians or one or the other, and then uh, how they preferred their physicians to introduce their, themselves uh, to the patient. The other thing they did in this study was that they reviewed uh, about 123 video clips, um, which were videos that had been taken for another study they were involved in. And these videos were of experienced clinicians at the University of Vermont, as well as Northwestern Medical Center in Chicago, greeting patients for the first time when they first met the patients uh, as their patients. And they uh, kind of analyzed these video clips to figure out how physicians that were experienced were actually greeting new patients in a clinical setting. So the striking findings uh, in this uh, interesting study were that, number one, uh, about half of patients preferred that uh, the physician use their first name. About um, half of them preferred that the physicians use both their first and last name or just their last name, such as in Mr. Jones. Um, so it's interesting that uh, about 50% of patients do prefer to be called by their first names, although many physicians are trained to use 
Mr., Ms., and so forth uh, to address them. The other thing was that about 80% or a little over 80% of uh, patients preferred to shake hands with their physician on initial greeting. Interestingly enough, about 17 or 18% surveyed in this study preferred that physicians not shake their hands, um, leading these investigators to conclude that one should be very tuned in to the body language of your patients in order to ascertain whether they're resistant to having their hands shaken. When they looked at the uh, demographics of this group that did not want their hands shaken, you would think it would maybe be very educated types who read about uh, Clostridium difficile and vancomycin-resistant enterococci and methicillin-resistant Staph aureus that are transmitted between people, and maybe they're afraid of catching something from their physicians who are around sick people all day long. Um, but uh, interestingly enough, it was predominantly elderly people who were not interested in shaking hands. And this was not all of the elderly people in the study, but some of the elderly people. So the point here is you, it's very hard to predict who those um, that one-fifth or so of patients is going to be, but you should be tuned in to their body language. The other thing is that uh, most patients preferred that when physicians introduce themselves that they use the physician's both first and last name, such as I would say, hi, I'm Dr. Paul Aronowitz. These authors suggested that the physician use both the first and last name of the patient as well. So I would say, hi, Mrs. Elaine Smith, I'm Dr. Paul Aronowitz, and then I would shake their hand because they did recommend that uh, handshaking continue, uh, albeit um, uh, that not every single patient wants you to shake their hand. So it's an interesting study and I think uh, worth thinking about since we really do not spend any time in medical education teaching people how to greet other people. But in that first 30 to sec 60 seconds initial encounter, it can sometimes really make or break your rapport with a patient. So it's worth thinking about. However, if you move forward from that question, the question number four I'm presenting today is, is how you greet your patients safe? And this... Um, is worth contemplating because ultimately the handshake, which was preferred by patients in the study I just talked about, is sort of a societal uh, thing that we do. It's ritualistic greeting, basically. And if you think about uh, New Zealand, the Maori there use something called the Maori Hongi greeting, and that's where they touch foreheads and noses when they greet one another. There's also the fist bump, which President Obama has uh, made fairly prominent. He uh, is, uh, there's some pretty well-known pictures. In fact, one of him fist bumping with his wife, Michelle, at a gathering um, back in the day. And um, so these investigators actually uh, published this article in the American Journal of Infection Control, and it was called The Fist Bump, A More Hygienic Alternative to the Handshake. And this was really kind of a fascinating study. It's, it's just a really early study of the transmission of bacteria, and it has some significant limitations to it, but it is certainly worth considering. So what they did in this study was that they took a sterile glove and immersed that sterile glove in non-pathogenic, I mean, E. coli that do not cause disease. And then they allowed the E. coli to dry, <clears throat> excuse me, into, onto the outside of the glove. And then they had someone put the glove on and shake hands with someone who is wearing a sterile glove. 
They didn't remove the sterile glove and washed off the external portion of the glove into a buffer, and then they took the buffer and plated it uh, out for, to see what amount of bacteria would grow from that buffer. So from that, they were able to surmise how much bacteria is transmitted between hands depending on the type of greeting. So they did several interesting things with these uh, gloves. And uh, one of them was that they looked at how much bacteria was transmitted when someone shook hands with someone else. And they also looked at moderate handshake versus a very firm, strong handshake. Uh, we like strong handshakes in medicine because it tends to uh, convey a sense of warmth or firmness or whatever. And I think in the business world, strong handshakes tend to be preferred. But the question is, are they the best thing for uh, greeting someone in a healthcare environment? They also did a fist bump, so they did the same thing with the gloves, and they had um, a contaminated glove bump uh, up against the fist of someone wearing a sterile glove, and again, they washed it off in buffer and plated it. They did a prolonged fist bump, and by that they meant uh, three seconds longer than a normal fist bump to see if more bacteria was transmitted. They did a high five, and they did a prolonged high five where there was more contact during the prolonged high five. And then they, of course, as I said, they had the moderate handshake and the strong handshake. And the really striking thing was that the uh, handshake transmitted a fairly substantial greater amount of bacteria uh, versus the high five and the fist bump. The best thing was the short fist bump, um, but there was a difference between the short fist bump and the prolonged fist bump, although the prolonged fist bump was still uh, transmitted far less bacteria than the handshake. Uh, the high five, it didn't really matter whether it was a normal high five or a prolonged high five. So conclusions from this study are that um, it appears that more bacteria is transmitted in a handshake than in a fist bump. And these uh, investigators went on to actually suggest that uh, the fist bump be considered to be the standard in greeting patients or other healthcare providers in order to decrease the amount of bacteria transmitted between the healthcare provider or between the patient and the healthcare provider going forward. I think we need more research in this area. This is not the be all and end all of this area. <coughs> the next question, uh, number five, that I'm going to address with you is Is medicine going to the dogs and cats? And I have to have uh, two different stories. Uh, in this podcast about dogs and cats, because I know some people prefer dogs and some prefer cats, and some people love all animals, including uh, equally dogs and cats. So this is a, a background to this study that I'm going to talk about, uh, Clostridium difficile, is that it's been fairly clear in the literature that there's a mean time of onset of symptoms uh, to the start of treatment in Clostridium difficile infection of somewhere between three and seven days. So in other words, patient gets diarrhea, takes three to seven days before treatment is started for that. And the delay you can imagine is because it might take a day or two for the healthcare team to recognize that the diarrhea is significant. Then there has to be a decision made to send the uh, stool off for sampling to look for C. difficile. And those studies tend not to come back right away. They can take anywhere from one to three days uh, to report out in the laboratory. 
So this allows this window of time where the patient does not receive uh, prompt therapy, the Clostridium difficile can get worse, and it is worth noting that in the United States in 2011, there were 18 or 19,000 deaths believed to be a direct consequence of C. difficile infection. So really a striking number and kind of frightening uh, because we use so many antibiotics and the antibiotics are the root cause of uh, C. difficile infection. The other piece of background for this study, I will tell you, is that for the longest time, I've worked with nurses who, <clears throat> when they tell me that one of my patients has developed diarrhea, will sometimes say, well, you know, it doesn't smell like C. difficile, so I don't think you need to send it for C. difficile analysis. Or they may say, you know, it's got that C. diff odor to it. I think we should send it for C. difficile. Now, we tend to be a little more analytic about it than just relying purely on their olfactory senses. But uh, it has been uh, noted for a long time that some nurses are quite good at smelling C. difficile. So studies have been done looking at this, and really there's a variable sensitivity between 55 and 82% for nurses being able to accurately detect C. difficile infection in symptomatic patients. Specificity varies between 77 and 83% in these studies. And I will say that even based upon these studies or my own anecdotal clinical experience, I think that if a nurse tells you that your patients develop diarrhea and that patient is on antibiotics and the nurse says, and it smells like C. diff, I would certainly pursue studying that stool by sending it to the laboratory for analysis for C. difficile infection. And if the diarrhea is severe enough, I'd consider starting empiric therapy for that patient based on that nurse's report. Um, now, obviously, uh, you can't 100% rely on what the nurse has told you, and that's why we send these things to the lab. And it, it certainly it, in no way could be 100% uh, sensitive or specific given our limited olfactory uh, sensitivity. So then the other background I will tell you is that in the Netherlands, they had a terrible problem with C. difficile infection for a number of years and they clamped down on various hospitals and hospital administrators, essentially docking uh, some of the pay uh, and some of the, uh, in other words, giving a negative financial incentive for hospitals that had high rates of C. difficile infection in their hospitalized patient population. Uh, so what happened was they created these very rigorous, uh, what we call, um, antibiotic stewardship programs where it's difficult to prescribe antibiotics unless you're really sure you need them and it's hard to use some of the worst offenders that cause C. difficile, which currently, at least in the United States, is fluoroquinolones and I believe that's the case um, as well, or was the case as well in the Netherlands. Those rates dropped dramatically, but some of this attention to C. difficile in Netherlands did prompt uh, some researchers there to think about this relationship between C. difficile, this delay in onset of treatment, or delay in onset of symptoms to treatment, and whether we could be doing better things for patients, as well as the fact that human beings claim to be able to smell the C. diff. And if you're wondering what uh, that C. difficile smell uh, smells like, it's described as being the smell of sweet horse manure. So uh, what these investigators did, and this was published in the British Medical Journal in uh, 2012, uh, it was in the Christmas edition, was that they, uh, this title 
of the article was using a dog's superior olfactory sensitivity to identify Clostridium difficile in stools and patients, proof of principal study. This was a very interesting study, and it got a fair amount of attention in the infectious disease arena. And so these investigators recognizing that dogs have 100 times stronger olfactory abilities than humans thought, well, if humans can sometimes smell C. difficile, how would a dog do in this environment? And so they found a dog, and his name was Cliff, uh, Cliff the C. diff dog, and he was a very, very handsome uh, beagle. And they um, uh, took him and trained him for uh, a little over a month in how to smell C. diff. And what they did, I won't get into all the details, but they actually would plate C. diff out and they'd roll sticks in the C. diff, as well as various objects of cloth and so forth. And they gradually trained Cliff. Um, they even challenged him by taking him out to the forest to confuse him with the smells of the forest, uh, and yet brought the C. diff with them. They took him to gas stations where the fumes from the gasoline might sort of muddle his sense of smell. And they gradually got him very well trained to the point where he was able to identify uh, the C. diff on plated specimens. And his ability to do this, he had a 100% sensitivity and a 100% specificity. So as good as any lab test that you could imagine was Cliff, the C. diff dog. The next step in the study was they needed to take Cliff out onto the hospital wards in the hospital they were working at. And they couldn't have him bark when he thought he smelled C. diff because this would disrupt routine patient care and perhaps scare or disturb the patients around the wards. So they taught him to sit or to lie down if he thought he smelled C. diff uh, in these patients. So they went out on the wards. They could not go on the pediatric wards because the children became too excited and would distract Cliff, and then they wouldn't really know whether Cliff was identifying that child as having or not having C. diff. So this was only done on adult patients. And what they found was uh, quite striking, actually, um, but that uh, he had a, between an 83 and 93% sensitivity for being able to identify symptomatic patients with C. difficile colitis and a 98% specificity. Now, the reason I'm reporting the 83 to 93% sensitivity as they did was that there were some equivocal results, and these were equivocal results tended to occur when, for example, one older woman who was eating her lunch when Cliff came in the room got very excited about seeing this cute little dog and attempted to feed him her chocolate chip cookie. This uh, confused the dog and further confused the investigators because they couldn't really tell whether he was sitting down or lying down to identify her as having symptomatic C. diff um, or whether uh, he was just excited about getting a chocolate chip cookie. So a dog in this environment is not straightforward, uh, but it is worth noting this 98% specificity for symptomatic patients with C. difficile. So Cliff the C. diff dog, three chairs for him. Um, I always have to balance dog stories with cat stories, and so I'm going to do that with um, the story of Oscar the cat. And many of you out in the listening audience may be aware of this particular story about um, this particular cat. But Oscar the cat is a cat who... Uh, I don't know if he's still alive or not because this story came out in 2007, but he was residing at a nursing home and a rehab facility in Providence, Rhode Island. 
And uh, Oscar was a, quite a remarkable cat. And I'm simply going to read you a section of the article uh, from the New England Journal of Medicine perspective that uh, talked about Oscar the cat. Making his way back up the hallway, Oscar arrives at room 313. The door is open and he proceeds inside. Mrs. K is resting peacefully in her bed, her breathing steady but shallow. She is surrounded by photographs of her grandchildren and one from her wedding day. Despite these keepsakes, she is alone. Oscar jumps onto her bed and again sniffs the air. He pauses to consider the situation and then turns around twice before curling up beside Mrs. K. One hour passes. Oscar waits. A nurse walks into the room to check on her patient. She pauses to note Oscar's presence. Concerned, she hurriedly leaves the room and returns to her desk. She grabs Mrs. K's chart off the medical records rack and begins to make phone calls. Within a half hour, the family starts to arrive. Chairs are brought into the room where the relatives begin their vigil. The priest is called to deliver last rites. And still, Oscar has not budged, instead purring and gently nuzzling Mrs. K. A young grandson asks her mother, What is the cat doing here? The mother, fighting back tears, tells him he is here to help Grandma get to heaven. Thirty minutes later, Mrs. K takes her last earthly breath. With this, Oscar sits up, looks around, and then departs the room so quietly that the grieving family barely notices. On his way back to the charting area, Oscar passes a plaque mounted on the wall. On it is engraved a commendation from a local hospice agency. For his compassionate hospice care, this plaque is awarded to Oscar the cat. Oscar takes a quick drink of water and returns to his desk to curl up for a long rest. The article uh, ends on this note. Since he was adopted by staff members as a kitten, Oscar the cat has had an uncanny ability to predict when residents are about to die. Thus far, he has presided over the deaths of more than 25 residents on the third floor of Steer House Nursing and Rehab Center in Providence, Rhode Island. His mere presence at the bedside is viewed by physicians and nursing home staff as an almost absolute indicator of impending death, allowing staff members to adequately notify families. Oscar has also provided companionship to those who otherwise would have died alone. For his work, he is highly regarded by the physicians and staff at Steer House and by the families of the residents whom he serves. For the, so for those of you out there in listening land who love cats, that's the story of Oscar the cat. And I will try and post a photograph from the New England Journal of Oscar the cat on this podcast. Question number six, do you believe in house staff black clouds? So for those of you that are not aware of this, uh, many, many, many trainees believe in this thing called a black cloud. And this uh, can occur across surgical training programs, pediatrics, internal medicine, OBGYN, and so forth. And what a black cloud is defined as is when a resident has significantly more difficulty on call uh, with experiences uh, let me repeat that. Uh, black cloud is described as when a resident has significantly more difficult on-call experiences than his or her peers. And so this was an article that appeared back in the early 90s in one of the pediatric journals. 
And I think it's one of the more interesting journal articles on medical education because I think it's highly relevant, highly important for program directors of residency programs to be aware of. And it's just a fascinating thing to think about because black clouds tend to be a fairly uh, believed in a phenomenon in training programs. So the questions these investigators addressed are, do black clouds really exist? Do individuals have different experiences on call? What's the relationship between actual workload and perceived workload? So what they did was that they collected data for 19 pediatric interns for 358 days, which totaled 1,355 on-call experiences. And the things they tracked in the study were hours slept, the number of admissions each intern got on that given call night, the total number of patients that were covered, the number of deaths occurring on those particular nights, the number of transfers to the pediatric intensive care unit that one of those interns had to oversee in moving a patient from the floor to the pediatric intensive care unit, the number of trips to the delivery room. So pediatricians are called to delivery rooms to resuscitate babies as they are delivered. And this can also add to the workload of a pediatrics on-call intern. And then they had the interns rate uh, their subjective impression of the workload for each call that they were involved in. At the same time, they also surveyed all the residents in that program. So that was R1s, which are first-year residents known as interns, R2s and R3s. Uh, and they did this three times throughout the year, and they asked them about the reputation of all the residents in the program and about how hard they thought others worked on their call nights. So this was really an assessment of the reputation of specific interns. And I will tell you that in this particular portion of the study, they found that of the 19 interns being studied, five of them were thought to have black clouds. So the perceived workload uh, appeared to have the greatest correlation with the amount of sleep. Uh, this is one of the findings in the study. In other words, the more people slept, the less hard they thought they worked. The less they slept, the more hard they thought that they were working. And they also found, and this is quite striking, is that none of these interns had significant differences in the workload parameters they were measuring. And these are fairly hard stop uh, parameters, namely uh, transfers, deaths, admissions, number of patients covered. So in other words, the experiences were quite comparable, which is really what you would expect across a year of experience. Um, they consistently found that people thought that the less they sl slept, the harder their workload was, and uh, the less uh, they slept led to perception that they had um, a heavier workload, and this led to per perceptions that they had a black cloud. So the authors concluded that individual work styles led to less sleep on call despite the same workload, because um, essentially uh, black clouds are self-generated and come from within. The reason why this study is so interesting and so relevant is that one of the things we don't think about much in medical education or in actually the practice of medicine is how different people deal with the same work. In other words, you may have extremely compulsive trainees, medical students, physicians 
who actually cross the T's and dot the I's and check in frequently on their patients through a night. And you have others who check in on the patients once, make sure everything's going okay, and then they go to sleep for the evening until they're called again to do some other task. And so these may be the people getting more work on call. Now, interestingly enough, these authors went on to discuss... um, what the impact of this potentially is. And if you contemplate these two types of people, the ones who are less efficient with the same workload as the more efficient trainees, one would think that maybe you would want the less efficient people in your training program because they're the ones who are compulsively checking in on their patients and hopefully assuring better patient outcomes. However, the argument could be made that they are actually less confident about the work that they're doing and perhaps even less competent in the work they're doing. So one really cannot make any broad generalizations about this group. And likewise, you could look at the group that gets more sleep on call doing the same amount of work, and you could say, well, they're more efficient, and those are maybe the trainees we want in our program. However, you could also make an inverse argument, which is that they're more lazy and they're not going around doing the work they should be doing. And nobody really knows, and the truth is probably somewhere in between for both of these different types of groups. But the most important thing to know about in this study is that black clouds appear to be self-generated and come from within the trainee, which you know leads me to say that if someone is complaining to you that they have a black cloud, you should pat them on the shoulder and suggest that they read this article and that some of their black cloud may be actually coming from the way they're approaching their work. Question number seven, how should you name that infectious disease you're about to discover? Well, I'm sure this is not a question that's kept you awake at night, thinking about the fact that you may or may not ever discover an infectious disease. Um, But the background for why this becomes an important question and why the World Health Organization actually in the spring of 2015 published recommendations about how infectious diseases should be named is that if you look at a picture, as I am doing at this moment, of the Connecticut River in Connecticut, you would think that it looks like a gorgeous place to go spend the summer or the spring, perhaps doing some camping or canoeing or hiking. But what if I told you that the Connecticut River runs very close to Lyme, Connecticut? Would you desire to go to Old Lyme or East Haddam or Lyme, Connecticut, where some of the original cases of Lyme disease were described? Um, So the naming of this disease might inspire you to go to California, for example, for your summer vacation rather than to Connecticut. Likewise, I'm now looking at a picture of a uh, river in Africa, which is really quite gorgeous. There's a crocodile jumping out of the river for tourists to see. And in this situation, you might think, wow, that would be a really interesting trip, really different than a typical vacation. But what if I told you that that crocodile is jumping out of the Ebola River? Um, So you get the picture. Uh, The names that are affixed to diseases can really uh, potentially dissuade you from going to a place or it can alter your impression of that place. For example, the Spanish flu Uh, or Middle Eastern Respiratory uh, Virus Syndrome. Those are all things that uh, make us have pause to travel to those locations. So in May of 2015, the World Health Organization published best practices for the naming of new human infectious diseases. I will not spend a lot of time discussing this, 
But I will tell you that they have two interesting tables, table A, diseases names um, may include, and table B, disease names may not include. And they break this down into several areas. So for disease names may include generic descriptive terms, uh, which would include clinical symptoms or physiologic processes. So examples of useful terms in this category would be respiratory, neurologic, hemorrhagic. You can use the word hepatitis or encephalitis if it's affecting the brain, diarrhea if it's causing diarrhea. Um, and then, you know, whether it's a syndrome, a disease, a fever, a deficiency, and so forth. Specific descriptive terms which may be included are the age group that is affected, for example, if it's predominantly juvenile or pediatric or uh, a woman, uh, could be maternal. Uh, the time course, uh, whether it's acute, subacute, chronic, progressive, and so forth, or transient. The severity, you can describe it as severe or mild. The seasonality, you can use the term winter, summer, etc. And the environment, whether it's uh, occurring in a subterranean, a desert, ocean, coastal, river, or swamp. And then the causal pathogen and associated descriptors. So if it's, for example, a coronavirus or it's an influenza virus or a parasitic infection, you can uh, note those things. Uh, and whether there's a specific subtype of that virus or bacterium that's causing it. You can report the year it occurs in um, initially, and then any arbitrary identifier such as alpha, beta, A, B, C, D, or Roman numeral 1, 2, 3, and so forth. So um, disease names may not include uh, geographic locations, and this is what I was getting at earlier. So you would not want to use the term Lyme disease. Uh, you would not want to use the term Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which when you think about it is a misnomer anyway, because uh, one of the big outbreaks of this disease was in Korea. So why are we not calling it South Korea Respiratory Syndrome or something like that? It just uh, can really fool you. Um, Rocky... Um, uh, Rocky Mountain spotted fever tends not to occur in the Rocky Mountains. It tends to occur in the south-central United States as well as southeast and so forth. I think some of the uh, most number of cases tend to be in places like Arkansas and Oklahoma, etc. So uh, this is a misnomer, really, as a, a named disease. And it was named that way, by the way, because it was described at the Rocky Mountain Research Labs uh, which are in the Rocky Mountains. Um, so you wouldn't want to use the term Japanese encephalitis, Spanish flu, Rift Valley fever, and so forth. Also, you can't use people's names. Uh, you shouldn't call something Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease or Chagas disease. You shouldn't use the species or class of animal or food it was initially associated with, such as swine flu, bird flu, monkeypox, equine encephalitis. Equine encephalitis gives horses a bad name. Paralytic shellfish poisoning. That's a very scary-sounding disease. Uh, you shouldn't use the cultural or population industry or occupational reference to the disease, such as miners, butchers, cooks, nurses, uh, or, say, Legionnaire's disease. Um, that gave uh, a lot of uh, devoted American veterans a bad name, even though one of the first places it was described was at a Legionnaire's convention in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania back in uh, the 1970s. And then finally, terms that incite undue fear should not be used, such as unknown, death, 
fatal or epidemic. So in contemplating what I would name my disease, it would sort of depend on where it started and what year it started and so forth. But I like thought this would have a ring to it. Uh, maybe if it came out of a swamp, I'd call it uh, swamp. And if it came out of the swamp in the spring, I'd call it spring, because that was the time of year it was occurring. And then you can use all these arbitrary identifiers. So I'd call it swamp spring two gamma lambda mu u two. And I thought that that would be the way I would name a disease. But that's just an example of what uh, you would consider as you were naming your disease, which Again, I don't think this question is keeping you awake at night, but it's worth being aware of. Question number eight, is there an antidote to bike riding related sexual dysfunction? Well, I think uh, if there's anyone in the bike industry listening to this recording, they will probably be upset by this part of my podcast um, because apparently biking blogs as well as the biking literature are somewhat in denial that there's any relationship between riding bikes and sexual dysfunction. And there have been numerous case reports of uh, patients who have been on prolonged bike rides, usually with a traditional hard saddle, you know, the one with the nose on it that we're used to riding on for the last 50 or 100 years. Um, and uh, there's various uh, case reports as well as clusters. Um, uh, there's some studies done in uh, police bike riders who are on their bikes more than 20 or 30 hours a week that indicate that in fact there is a, an effect on sexual function. And this is not just in men, by the way, this is also in women as well. Um, so, uh, you can go on the uh, internet and just search um, uh, bike saddle and sexual dysfunction, and you can sort of understand why it might be that uh, this would happen. Is the way the pudendal nerve passes uh, just beneath uh, the pelvis. Um, when someone is riding on a bike saddle with their weight pushed back on the seat, the pudendal nerve can be compressed, and the pudendal nerve is fairly important in sexual function, the ability to get erections, it can, uh, Prolonged compression of this can also cause uh, 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 numbness of the genitalia and so forth in women. So, and again, this is not just a thing that affects uh, men more than women, but it's been reported more in men than it has in women. So uh, what these uh, investigators at the Division of Applied Research and Technology at the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health did was that based on these case reports and case series of people who ride bikes a lot uh, have reported in the way of erectile dysfunction, uh, they did a study cutting off the nose to save the penis is what it was caused and called rather. Um, and by that, they did not mean cutting off the person's nose, but cutting off the nose on the bicycle seat and making a uh, noseless bicycle seat. And uh, these are available for purchase, actually, uh, and you can check out images of those on uh, the Internet as well. So what they did in this study was they looked at uh, over 100 bicycle police officers, and uh, they ended up with 90 of these male bicycle police officers by the end of the study. There were some that didn't follow up at their six months uh, follow-up, so, uh, and then there were some that were transferred out of the bike unit. And so they were, they were left with 90 uh, uh, bicycle police officers that followed up. And they had to have uh, time in the saddle more than 24 hours per week to be included in the study. And what these investigators looked at were perineal pressure reduction uh, using uh, noseless bike seats. 
they did surveys uh, of the police officers regarding their sexual health, and they even did uh, biophysiometry, which is essentially uh, studies of their uh, penises to see if sensitivity at the beginning of the study versus the end of the study when they'd been using these noseless seats had improved. And the general conclusions um, are that penile health improved over the six months they were using the noseless seats. So this is, the bike industry shouldn't be upset by this study because they weren't saying don't ride bikes. They were saying that you might want to use a different type of biking saddle uh, if you're experiencing difficulties with uh, perineal sensation, penis sensation, or sexual health. Um, so... Uh, and the interesting thing was, initially, some of the policemen were resistant to using a no-nose bike saddle. Um, but by the end of the study, most of the police officers uh, preferred these no-nose saddles uh, at the end of the study, even though they looked a little bit strange as compared with traditional bikes. So uh, they seemed to be relatively convinced uh, by uh, what was done in the study that their sexual health improved after using uh, these no-nose bike saddles. Question number nine uh, are, uh, is that um, uh, are men more likely than women to eliminate themselves from the gene pool by doing idiotic things? And um, the uh, background for this study is that uh, there are these things called the Darwin Awards, which many of you out there may have read in the past. They come out in a book every few years. And uh, winners of the Darwin Award must die in such an idiotic manner that their action ensures the long-term survival of the species by selectively allowing one less idiot to survive. And some of these stories in the Darwin Awards are quite almost unbelievable, although they supposedly are verified deaths that have occurred. For example, uh, a story of a terrorist who was trying to send a letter bomb to a high government official but uh, affixed inadequate postage in sending out his letter bomb. The letter bomb was returned to his home for lack of adequate postage, and he opened the letter and blew himself up. That would be considered uh, someone who was a candidate for the Darwin Award. In fact, he did win the Darwin Award for that particular um, maneuver. Another example, someone who tried to steal a hauser out of an elevator uh, and was underneath the elevator removing the hauser, not realizing that the hauser was supporting the elevator in the elevator shaft. The elevator fell on him and crushed him to death. Uh, he won the Darwin Award for this effort. So uh, these particular investigators, in a somewhat tongue-in-cheek Christmas article in the British Medical uh, Journal, although this was uh, done as a serious research project, is that they looked at sex differences in idiotic behavior, idiotic behavior being defined as doing something that's just so egregious and leads to one's death that uh, one is really an idiot for having done it. And they looked uh, at the um, 1995 through 2014 Darwin Awards and uh, attempted to see if there's a gender difference between the winners, and it was a pretty simple study. And what they found was that strikingly greater number of males um, had done idiotic things and eliminated themselves from the gene pool than women had in these Darwin Awards. I think there was 30-some-odd women in this group and uh, well over 200 men who had received Darwin Awards. The uh, finding in this was... Uh, 
substantially statistically significant with a p-value less than 0 0.0001. And they didn't... Uh, they got in a little bit in this article discussing why these differences might occur between men and women, uh, but it is worth noting that men tend to show up at emergency rooms at a higher rate with sporting in, uh, injuries, and it is worth noting that more men die in traffic fatalities than women. Um, so it, there is a sort of a general consensus that men tend to take greater risks than women do. Uh, with a lower uh, benefit ratio. In other words, they may do idiotic things with marginal benefit from doing that particular thing. And this study would support that concept. Question 10 is my final question, and that is, why do knuckles crack? The background to this study is that um, it has been something that's been talked about in the medical literature and scientific literature since the early 1900s. Um, as far back as the 1940s, uh, x-rays were done of cracking knuckles to try and get a sense of what was actually causing that cracking sound in the knuckles when someone cracks their knuckles. And these researchers um, make us aware in, a, in an article in PLOS One called Real-Time Visualization of Joint Cavitation. And this was a serious research article that was done as well. Um, point out the fact that the the consensus prior to this study was that the thing that made the cracking sound was the bursting of small pockets of air, or, or gas bubbles, I shouldn't say air, it's gas bubbles, within the joints as the knuckles are being cracked. And this study is sort of a landmark in clarifying what actually causes that sound, and it was a fairly clever little study. They had one patient that was being studied, and this person was able to crack all five uh, of their uh, metacarpal knuckles. Um, and so they created this device that actually applies traction gradually to the finger until the knuckle cracks. And then they were able to place the patient's hand or the subject's hand over something in an MRI scanner, and they were able to do cine uh, magnetic resonance imaging on the fingers as um, the finger was uh, having traction applied to it to the point where the knuckles cracked. And what they found was fairly interesting in the sense that uh, as the finger was being uh, having a traction applied to it, uh, as the surfaces were pulled apart, there was a critical point at which when those surfaces were pulled apart, a small uh, uh, void was formed within the joint. And it was as this void was formed, which is really this um, little uh, uh, gas collection, that was when the knuckles cracked. So it wasn't the bursting of these gas collections that was causing the cracking. It was actually the formation of these gas collections. And this is something that is known as tribonucleation. And what tribonucleation is, is that as two surfaces that are submerged in a viscous fluid that are strongly opposed to, opposed to each other are pulled apart, there's a critical point at which when those surfaces come apart, it causes the formation of some gas bubbles. And uh, so what these investigators did was they appeared to have proved that the cause of the cracking of knuckles is from this process of tribonucleation. 
So really that's my take home point for you today, that tribonucleation is the cause of cracking knuckles. I know that many of these questions are fairly unrelated in your mind, um, but hopefully you've learned at least three things from this podcast. And I hope that you have a very nice day. And if I get some positive uh, thumbs up signs for this podcast, I will come out with a second um, joy of medicine questions that you always want to know the answer to podcasts sometime in the next six to 12 months. Thank you and have a very nice day. This podcast was brought to you by Paul Aronowitz. This podcast was also produced by Paul Aronowitz, and he is solely responsible for the content of this podcast. Apologies to those of you that were offended by mention of diarrhea, internal organs, sexual dysfunction, or anything else contained in this podcast. Thank you for listening, and have a nice day.